You're listening to The Story Connective. In this episode, we hear about a man who lives his life believing that amazing is our birthright. Noel Rattler walked from Houston, Texas to Los Angeles, California on a quest to raise awareness for homelessness and so much more. Homelessness is something that's everywhere. If we get people to look at it more, they'll start to pay attention more, they'll pay attention more, they'll start hearing similar stories to theirs, they'll start to empathize. And once people start practicing empathy, hopefully they won't be able to turn it off. Welcome to The Story Connective. I'm Rebecca Rhapsody. The Story Connective is dedicated to documenting and sharing inspiring stories of possibility, resilience, and cooperation. In this episode, Noel Rattler takes us on a journey into ourselves and beyond. We talk about everything from science fiction to ancient Rome's influence to mental illness to shifting society. Noah has some incredible ways of cultivating resilience and possibility in his own life. A few years ago, he walked 1,800 miles from Houston, Texas to L.A., California in the sweltering summer heat to raise awareness for homelessness and to show his community and beyond how any human being can do extraordinary things. We hear the story of his walk in this interview and his motivations, his mindset, and how his life experiences in education have changed his connection with himself, nature, and society. One reason why we wanted to talk to Noah is because in 2007, he decided to walk across the United States. Can you tell us a little bit more about why you did that? I walked from Houston to Los Angeles, 1,800 miles, 134 days, 90 days of walking in those extra 44 days. If I was not resting and recuperating, I was in the attempt and actually in the process of meeting with organizations who serve the homeless because I was raising awareness of homelessness. That's why Um, you were walking. That was the cause, the official cause of the walk. I don't think of anything as a one-dimensional object. There are no one-dimensional phenomena. Everything is multi-dimensional. And so while I was raising awareness for homelessness, I was also very upset with a cultural adoption of mediocrity and an acceptance of the mundane as the status quo, Uh where amazing could be the status quo, the mundane is the status quo. And I really want to be an example for just what's possible if we decide to look outside of the path set before us and just investigate what what can we do? Because all of the things we do are choices. We choose to do all of this stuff. So in my community, in the, the, the section of my community, that's the African-American community, it was something that was rather heard of, if ever, and thought of as something crazy and insane to do. What is? Uh, walking across the country. Even in the greater community, people do it all the time. Mm-hmm. I, didn't get, I didn't make the idea up. I knew I'd heard of people doing it before. Then I'd research people and I started thinking about it. Come across this whole world of people who walk. Abraham Lincoln, before he was president, like he was living on a farm with his dad up in Illinois somewhere, they'd farm. 
put their stuff on a raft and take it down to Mississippi and walk back 1,100 miles. They do it every year. That was just, that was just the lifestyle. It wasn't amazing when he did it. That's just what you did <laughs> if you wanted to eat during the wintertime. We all have great potentials inside of us. We're not asked to turn that potential into kinetics often. So you're talking about some really big, amazing ideas, uh, pushing the boundaries of the mundane, of the everyday. How did you start getting interested in these concepts? Was there anything in particular that happened? Science fiction like yeah. taught me to ask the question, what if? I, I believe all science fiction in books, all mediocre to good science fiction is social commentary. You can talk about all of the big issues, racism, economic inequality, whatever you can think of, there's probably a Star Trek episode, <laughs> just an original Star Trek. Don't think about all the other permutations afterwards. Just the Star Trek, it's all been talked about. If you get into reading science fiction, I've read books and books and books and books and libraries worth of science fiction stuff. Plus, I want to be an astronaut. And so my mind has always been bent around seeing the whole world. And those themes, the large overarching themes, are what you see when you look at the world from the space shuttle. Mm -hmm. When you look at the sun from outside of the galaxy. You said that the official theme of your walk was to raise awareness for homeless. What got you aware of that issue and made you want to explore or raise awareness about that? I was reading science fiction, which is something I picked up from my, my dad. I was also growing up in a house with him and my mother and my brothers and sisters. Something I learned from them, think for myself, because I used to say that all the time. Hmm. The second thing, two major takeaways from childhood, is I learned how to love the world. They taught me that through their actions. I don't think they did it intentionally, but they would bring people into the house to live with us. Most of the time it was relatives, but eventually there were people who weren't kin to us, but they needed, and my parents did. So I left home with that on one side, trying to figure out how to care for the world, thinking for myself in the middle, and the science fiction big picture guy on the left side. And so when I'm at Prairie View studying mechanical engineering and physics, all of that is about how energy transfers from one place to other, how objects interact with each other when they're moving near each other, how systems interact, how that energy flow through the system changes um, the system itself, and how the system changes what's flowing through it. It's all about interaction. Mm -hmm. And so I figured out pretty early on that scientific principles that I was learning can be applied to people. If you look at a person the right way. All of these working at the same time, I had a desire to be socially conscious. I didn't, hadn't seen much, except outside of my small community. But I started learning. The world's terrible. It has a lot of beauty in it, but the beauty needs to be saved from the ugly. I need to save the world. I don't know if I'm gonna live long enough to do it, but I'm gonna figure out how to do it. So I went to, through this progression of Picking out what I thought to be a problem and then investigating with this actually, if I got rid of the problem, how much good would be done? How much bad would disappear? I came to the idea before that happened that like this tree 
Each leaf is a problem. You can go around picking the leaves off, mm-hmm. or you can cut it down at the, at the base. You can cut the trunk in half, and then all of these problems will disappear because they spring from this fundamental issue. The roots. Right. Yeah. And so it's all about digging out the root. Went through a bunch of things, and I came to mental illness mm-hmm. as an obser- observation. Like, wow. In the black community, we don't talk about it much. In society as a whole, it's stigmatized a little bit, and it's drug people drug here and there. And we have these environmental causes of mental illness. We have these um, societal pressures that create these issues in, in individuals, and over a group of individuals becomes a trend, and the trend in behavior becomes causes reactions. I start thinking about this because I've learned that. In Rome, the aristocracy drunk a lot of wine out of these casks mm-hmm. that were painted with a lead-based paint. And the side effects of lead poisoning, chronic lead poisoning, are like you're much more tendent, you have a higher tendency to violence. A bunch of these negative things that I got to thinking, well, if everyone who led Rome, the most powerful country in that part of the world, was like violently insane from lead poisoning, how does that affect their decisions? If yeah. they are all more prone to violence, how does that affect their, affect their decisions and affect their internal and external their foreign policy? Mm-hmm. Do they use the military more than they normally, than they would have had they not been? The leadership of an organization sets the tone for the organization oftentimes. And so when leadership is pro-violence, build up this fighting force, which attracts other people who want to do violence, and then you can send them out to do violence on other people, mm-hmm. which then conditions those people to behave a certain way. And so I tracked American slavery of African Americans, Native Americans, and even uh, the first attempts with uh, folk coming up, poor folk coming up from Europe, back to Europe, back to the Roman invasion of Europe, back to Rome back to those lead-based paint-colored wine bottles. If I could get rid of that insanity in those Romans, maybe none of this would have happened. Because maybe they wouldn't have invaded uh, Britain and done unhumane things to them people and then set them on the course of crazy for several hundred years that everybody is suffering from. Maybe things would be different. So in, uh, mental illness became one of those roots that I figured we could dig up. In our time and age. In our time and age. I started looking to see, like, how is it, uh-huh. what is mental illness looking like in the real world? One got some books from the library, and one of them was, like, a history of mental illness and its treatment in Western society. And through post-Dark Age Europe up until colonial America, and it was a trend to that mentally ill were either homeless oftentimes, or incarcerated. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily the punitive prisons, but they were locked up. And so I was in, a, in, a, in an attempt to try and learn more about mental illness mm-hmm. firsthand without going to school to study it. Or I was coming to the end of my engineering degree at this time. Mm-hmm. I started, I decided to either volunteer at a prison or at a homeless shelter. My ex-girlfriend went to this, organ, went to this church out here and they have uh, St. John, they have a big uh, homeless ministry. And so I tried to volunteer there. I couldn't, but I was at a meeting trying to talk to someone there, and I talked to someone at Search. And no, someone recommended Search to me. And so I wound up volunteering at Search Homeless Services. And while I was there, 
trying to see mental illness on the streets. I just, I got to see homelessness as something more than just mental illness. It's a whole wide variety of things that cause homelessness and talking to people, shaking hands, sitting down eating with folk, just listening to people talk, tell their stories. And I, I started to hear alternative possibilities, like a, a, a common science fiction plot device is through time travel, you have these alternative uh, options, futures and past. So if you change one thing, then the future will change. And so that being a part of my psychological makeup, yeah. I started saying, wow, this guy was the same age. Had I made the decision he made when he was in 11th grade, and he made the decision I made, I might be right where he is, and he might be where I, where I am. We're not very different kind of the same. Once that happened, that was a, it was a couple of real poignant moments and that made me, it expanded my boundaries dramatically. So I didn't decide to walk then. I was coming to the end of my physics degree and I wanted to do something real big and that's when I started thinking about walking across the country. And while I was like investigating how to walk to the Grand Canyon, I was volunteering and then me and the guys on the van were talking about it and like, you know what? did it for charity you probably get some help you probably help somebody well, you know what that's right what charity did i have i'm on the van volunteering for a search i've been doing it for two years why don't i ask them yeah ask them they hesitantly said yes <laughs> and the rest is history so what was that first day like when you started walking the lead up to the walk i had experienced a an emotional state i'd never experienced before i believe the best way to word to way to describe it is I fell into a void, mm-hmm. an experiential void. Um, my consciousness felt like it was in, like it had receded into me. Say my head was like a stadium, and my consciousness left my eyes and receded all the way to this chair at the center of the stadium. So I was getting information from far away, like I could see out and see the world. I could hear. But everything seemed like it was just coming from really far away. And the closer and closer I got to it, the further and further away it got. And I became more and more recessed into this void of levelness. Day of the walk, there was a ceremony at search, like a goodbye thing. A bunch of people showed up and they walked with me for the first block. The void was there until I took the first step. The very first step just disappeared. It was gone. And I was normal. I walked with my my buddy Jason. We walked from Houston to Airtex, and then from Airtex to Conroe. And the next day, I started walking by myself. And geographically, for those of you who may not know, much larger than most other major cities in the country. Much larger. You fit several of them inside Houston's boundaries. So I could have probably walked all the way across Chicago on that first day. Definitely could have walked across New York, St. Louis, Philadelphia, all of them at once, like all in that first day. So that's how much distance I covered. And at the end of the day, I was in a bunch of pain, but it was real. And it was step after step of more real and more real. When I got to Dallas, it was even more real. Mm. When I was standing uh, at the Mexico, New Mexico-California border, wow. another level of reality stepped in. The New Mexico-California border? No, New Mexico-Texas border. Texas-New oh, Mexico okay. border. Yeah. I was like, wow, this is like official. And I think that was the last it's happening. <laughs> yeah, that's what the first day was like. It was a, a switch. It wasn't really dramatic. But what I came to realize is that over time, 
that increasing void away from sensation leading up to flipped over and there was an increasing connection to the external. What were some of the most memorable interactions, moments, ahas from your walk across the country? And how long was the walk again from the day that you first started walking to when you reached the coast in California? I'm pretty sure it was 134 days uh-huh. from March 24th to August 4th. There were things, deep experiences I had with people. There were experiences I had between myself and nature that were extremely profound. And I can talk for hours about both of those. And Amarillo, I had a support vehicle driver, Jury, uh, from Dallas to California. She was volunteer with me in search. And Amarillo, we were staying at this rest stop. And the second morning, it was very foggy. And I was looking out into the fog, and it looked like I saw some figures standing out in the middle of this field. It was just like really rough silhouettes, like they were made of smoke. And they were like looking and trying to really understand what I was looking at. They came in the resolution, so to speak, and there were these two guys. And so I wound up talking to them. I stayed in Amarillo for a week, and so over a couple of days, I interviewed both of them. They were actually sleeping out there in that field, and it was it was a really profound conversation, with, especially with the older guy. He'd been on the streets since the 70s, wow. on and off. He said he was married. Um, he was real, really skilled guy, so he had the type of skill set you can go anywhere and show up anywhere in the world and get work immediately because he knew carpentry and electric, electrical all that, all construction stuff he knew all of that stuff um and mechanic he work on trucks and get the truck fixed up and all this he knew all that stuff i talked with him for an hour on camera he talked about just listening to him talk about how his experience of the country has changed since the 70s and how nice people are not anymore just, just it wasn't that like anything violent happened to him. It just people used to be friendlier, and that's something that you hear and suspect. But his perspective on it was different. His perspective was on it from someone who hitchhikes. He talked about the questions he asked himself because he doesn't really understand why he does it. And there's a part of him that enjoys the freedom, but then there's a part of him that suffers from the solitude, and he seemed to be trapped in between the two. And there was a moment where he asked me at the end, he's like, I don't know. I don't know why I do this. Do you know? Do you understand why I do this? And I thought he was just hypothetical, but no, he was like, serious, like anybody can tell me. Yeah, yeah. So it was a real deep conversation. And we were laying down in this field. Wind was blowing. It was a real deep conversation. I need to get that out. Now, you mentioned that you had some really moving moments with nature. One day on a restroom break, this was after the Grand Canyon, I believe. I Drew was parked off of this turnaround. And so I walked down there and got a sandwich and went to these trees to, to use the restroom. And I saw under the trees, maybe 100 feet away, something kind of just lumbering. And I looked at it and kept looking. And I realized it came out behind some trees, the bushes or something. It was a wild pig. And it... I made sure it saw me because I read if it, they usually attack people when they're trying to escape or feel cornered. It saw me and I was like, you know what? I shouldn't do this, but I'm going to go get my camera and put this, get this on tape. So I ran, got the camera, came back and it was still there. And I slowly kind of started to creep towards it and it slowly started to walk away. I less slowly creeped and it less slowly walked away. And then I was kind of 
slow trot, and it was slow trotting away. Mm-hmm. And I've stopped pressing my left right then. Because I didn't want it to really freak out and turn around. But, like, I chased a wild pig through the underbrush, like the crocodile hunter. That was pretty deep. That was pretty cool for me. What um, about it was so deep? Just the sure danger of it and the <laughs> foolishness for the most part. And I've always been like a nature guy, a nature boy. Love watching Wild America when I was young. Any documentary or something that comes across uh, National Geographic, all this, I love it. Oh. And so just being out there in it where I'm sure I can find some wild pigs in Texas, but I hadn't been, been in an environment where I could. And so just being cl- that close. Pretty deep. It was pretty, and it was cool. It was really, really cool and stupid. It was kind of a meta experience, I guess, when I met my first rattlesnake, like a rattler meeting a rattler. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of cool. There's some really profound and deep things that happened just walking through the desert. That's when I came to realize the opposite side of the void that was leading up to the, the first day, the void that I fell into. The experience of being like in a one chair within a stadium and right. everything kind of feeling and far everything away. was far away. Yeah. That was like a disconnection almost. I receded them to myself and everything was far away. By the time I was I acclimated to the heat of the desert, the far away was connected to me deeply. There was no separation between that horizon, me and that horizon. It was a continuous reality. So the border that separated me from my environment disappeared. And it had it started disappearing the first day. Um, I noticed, essentially, I, became, I, was, I went native. I became a natural being again, and not this socialized that we are. All of the, the belief in the stories that I believed and like the motivations of ownership and being rich and all these things kind of disappeared. All of this, the desires of the modern world, which I by that time I had been call, started calling it the artificial world, all those things disappeared. And the only thing that was left was synchronized with the natural world. Like I noticed it two weeks in when I started telling time by the sun. So after you went on this long walk where you, you learned a lot about yourself and about connection with nature and connection with other people, what was it like coming back? And did you notice any any changes? In coming back, I noticed that I had changed the equivalent of being gone for four and a half, five years. So in four and a half months, I went through the same amount of change that I had from middle school to high school. I had grown that much. Wow. Um, and it was very awkward. It took me a long time to adjust. That connection that I developed while walking through the desert was, I don't have a frame of reference to really explain it. So I can't, it's hard for me to compare it to anything else. It's like skydiving. It's not like, you can't say skydiving. It's like, no, it's not like anything. It's like skydiving. So you have to do it to kind of have an idea of what it's like. Um, but it was a very super profound experience. Developing that connection, it wasn't just a state of, it wasn't like an emotional state. It was a rearrangement in my outlook in perspective, I look on the universe and my understanding of where I fit and how I fit into it. And so it had rearranged my priorities and everything. Everything was different. Everything was different. So when I got back, it took a while to adjust. Um, physically, there was a bunch of foot pain. 
Um, I lost a sense of touch in my outer two toes on my right foot because the ground was so hot in the desert. It like cooked my foot one day and I didn't feel my toes Whoa. for like five months maybe. And then it just soft tissue damage just over the time walking on the cement for 1,800 miles. It did a lot of damage. There was psychological pain. Truck t- a truck drove by me, 18-wheeler drove by me, and the tire exploded right next to me, and that freaked me out. And then walking out of the desert was real traumatic, coming back into society, because when I walked through the Mojave Desert, I had to walk Route 66. All the traffic goes on Interstate 40, so I was used to the noise of the highway. Walking Route 66 through the Mojave Desert, you may see two or three cars a day at one period of time. The busy part was like a two or three cars an hour. So it's very quiet and peaceful, and it just set, settled in on me. I settled into that uninterrupted being so deeply. One of the things that I'm pretty sure of is when I walked into the city, like I felt like I was being assaulted. Wow. I think it was actually because, I thought it was because I was disconnected from nature. Actually, now I think it was because things are louder. And we have like, you go inside, you have 90 degree angles, and everything is so... It was so blatantly artificial. The lights were too bright for my eyes. Air conditioning was like very annoying. I couldn't deal with air conditioning. Um, The sounds of the city, the hustle and bustle, all the people, just too much. And so that was, it took me a lot. All of that played into why it took me so long to heal up internally. But after, as I was putting the pieces back together, oddly enough, I watched this British series, this Robin Hood series. And Robin Hood is this guy went to this place far away and he came back different. And he decided to become Robin Hood because his experience when he was gone wouldn't allow him to accept what was acceptable before he left. And something similar happened to me. I had planned on walking and coming back and going and applying for jobs. Before I finished, I knew I wasn't coming back to work as an engineer. I knew I was at least going to be committed to this for five years. And now it's almost 10 years later. Committed to what exactly? To raising awareness for homelessness. Mm-hmm. And it's grown since then. It's not, it's, it wasn't, homelessness is really about mental illness, my initial. And it, it developed into really trying to figure out a way to get us to be more empathetic with each other. Because I made a connection with a guy who was homeless. Was a white guy, he was on the freeway. We met and talked with him. He burned his house down when he was young. His mother died, and he was homeless ever since. He never recovered. Like, wow, if I had, that happened to me, I could be him. I could see myself being in that situation. Yeah. This guy is in a, he's not, he's on the surface different than me. But I, through listening to his story, I was able to put myself in his shoes see the world as he did and I could see myself in him. I could empathize with him. And I was like, you know, homelessness is something that's everywhere. If we get people to look at it more, they'll start to pay attention more, they'll pay attention more, they'll start hearing similar stories to theirs, they'll start to empathize. And once people start practicing empathy, hopefully they won't be able to turn it off. So when you hear something about something going on in Lebanon, Israel, or Indonesia, or Uganda, you'd be able to say, not those people over there, those are people over there, but those are people over there. You'd be able to say that. People who have stories like me, 
even though they don't look like me, they speak a different language. I know because I was, yeah, I had a McDonald's sandwiches homeless guy who's nothing like me, and we're exactly the same. We're almost the same. So if I can connect with this guy, I can connect with anyone. That was like the overarching goal. After I healed up, went on to do other things. Just used to sleep out. Talk um, about the Houston Sleep Out. Let's talk. Sleep Out is the event where we first two years was at Sesame Centennial Park. We it was a fundraiser, raised one hundred ten thousand dollars. People came and spent the night outside. Folks from the homeless community came and spent the night with us. And people from the organizations, it was search then, we would talk about it. So it was just a conversation, a program that consisted of a conversation on homelessness from different perspectives. We looked at it from the first person perspective, from the support system perspective, and from the outsider's perspective. So from all different cycles, but we didn't look at it from a classroom. We didn't look at it from the comfort of our home, looking at a documentary. We looked at it from the place where they are where they live. And so that's over the last eight years have changed a bunch of people's lives. People changed their PhD studies. A whole bunch of stuff has changed. It's dramatically changed a few people. It's changed a few people dramatically changed more people, less dramatic, but it's helped get people to start thinking yeah. differently about how we engage in our environment. And the next thing I did a couple years back, a classmate of mine was out of state. She moved back to Houston and wanted to write a children's book. So we wrote a children's book about the walk. What's it called? Noah's Walk. It's called Noah's Walk or La Caminata de Noah in Spanish. <laughs> and Le Marchand de Noah in Canadian French. The point of the book is told from the aspect of the perspective of a teacher who's using my walk as an example to get her children to think about their communities and how they can impact. That has been my major takeaway, I think, from the walk itself. Um, one, empathy is the key to, f to fixing all of our problems. Homelessness, um, immigration, all the things that we deal with, being able to look another human being in the eye and wanting to look another human being in the eye and try and find yourself in their eyes. If anyone who does that is going to make a good decision for that other person, they're going to make the best decision they can on behalf of that other person. Specifically around homelessness, really been trying to uh, drive up volunteer roles for the organizations. It's always good to send money to the, the organizations that do good work. You have to do research to make sure that they're doing good work. It's always a good thing to do that. And just being a good member of your community because people don't all of a sudden wind up homeless. It's usually a trend of activity that winds up getting them there. And so homelessness is often tied to poverty. It's more on the temporary homeless side, uh, folk going on and off the streets, mentoring children in schools that have bad perform, bad perform, low performing schools. You're a professional or an adult with a steady lifestyle and want to give back to the community, go mentor some children. There are always everywhere some children who don't have someone putting a lot of positivity into their life yeah. that can change their course and make them much less likely to be on and off the streets when they grow up. Yeah. Things like that. Um, paying attention to how you vote with your money and with your, and in the ballot. Because every time we have a war, we have a surge in the homeless population. Really? Because it immediately, as soon as kids come back home, they wind up on the street. Now it's not all veterans, it's not most veterans, but it's a large enough population of the veterans population that's been so close to Memorial Day. Yeah. It just, something that has to be thought about. And then another thing is post-traumatic stress is not something that just happens to veterans. 
it happens to people who suffer from trauma. Yeah. And so going back to the mental health thing, us being able to do, take it more seriously and understand that it's in your mind mean it's something in your mind, in your brain can be broke just like an arm can be broke. Even though you can't see it, doesn't make, make it less real. So when someone says, oh, the problem is all in your mind, if it's in your mind, that's where it's the realest. Because all of our problems go through our mind. Oh. Break your finger, if the nerves aren't attached, you won't feel the pain in your mind. It's in your mind with the pain. And so uh, mental health, really getting people to think about how we deal with mental health as a society and try to stop treating the mentally ill in the jail systems. But it's an environment that is not the best for healing from a bunch of things that people go through. I guess and it happens across the country. It's better than it's better than being in that situation and having a mental illness and not being taken care of at all. Right, yeah. right. But better than just not being there. It's, because, it is. Yeah. Sometimes it's worse. You got somebody who's not violent in there with violent it's, it's kind of hard to, it, they, they have to do too much mm-hmm. with what they have. Yeah. And they shouldn't have to do all of that. Um, we should be able to find resources to break that section off and deal with it. And it's happening. It's happening all the time. People are now thinking about housing first. When I started volunteering, it was just people in the field talking about it. But now it's reached the level of legislation, so it's working. Um, people were not thinking much of what was being done for the mentally ill during that time back in 07. It's like having sections of the police force that are trained to deal with mentally ill people um, that are sensitive to their needs. That's happening much more across the country. Having homelessness courts, drug addiction courts, uh, not to treat you like a criminal, I want to treat you like someone who's addicted to a substance, you go to a different room, different court, and we have a different set of things, reactions to the behavior that we have here, instead of just treating everybody like someone who needs to go to prison. So with all your experience of wanting to look at the roots of larger systems and your, not background, but your, your immersion in science fiction even, and with all your experience raising awareness for homelessness and empathy and mental illness in the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. Do you have any ideas, inclinations, intuitions about the possibilities of the future? You hear this a lot, that we are more divided as a country than we ever have been. You get a Sprite or Coke at a gas station. Pull a Coke out, bite, walk outside, open it, nothing to happen. That same Coke, going back to science fiction, alternate uh, futures, you come out and on the way out, you drop it and it hits the ground and bounces and bounces. You open it, the Coke will come out. The same amount of energy that pushed the Coke out um, was in, is in the Coke that didn't spill out. The potential for that reaction is in the same, it, it, it's in both Cokes. It's how the system was engaged and jostled which changes the reaction and releases the energy. And so our divisions as a country, they've been there. I went to functionally 
not mandatorily, but segregated schools. I mean, I was lived in a black neighborhood. Most kids there were black. So most kids at school were black. We still live by ourselves in this country, oftentimes. Now, there are places where people are really well mixed in, and Houston talks about it, it being one of the most diverse places here in the country, diverse cities and metropolitan areas in the country. It's true. But the reality is we have people who are Asian, uh, white, black, and Latino, and we all live with each other. We aren't integrated into each other, living with each other. We live by ourselves, next to each other. And so thinking about that, I think this is going to be a really great opportunity in the old uh, classical Chinese use of the word crisis, which is the same word means crisis and opportunity. We're coming up to this point where we have to make a decision. And we can go left, right, straight forward, backwards. There is a feeling of inevitability that often comes with going with the flow. And I hope that there are enough of us who want to know what if, that when the next inflection point, crisis point happens, we take the opportunity. Instead of doing a reactive thing, we do something proactive that will make things better. That's the end of our interview with Noah Rattler. You can follow Noah's inspiring example and help raise awareness about homelessness in your area. Look for a local homeless coalition near you and check out the National Coalition for the Homeless. Learn more at www.nationalhomeless.org. Look for Noah's book as well, called Noah's Walk, a 1,800-mile journey raising the awareness of homelessness by Nakisha Pickney and Noah Rattler and illustrated by Thaddeus Lavallee. The Story Connective is 100% listener and viewer supported. If you support Story Connective's 501c3 mission and vision of bringing inspiring stories of resilience and possibility to the world, please make a donation and support our crowdfunded project at patreon.com slash storyconnective or by using the Be a Patron button on the Podbean podcast app. Thank you for your support. We really enjoy doing this and we want to keep doing it. Interview by Rebecca Rhapsody at storyconnective.org. Audio recording by Loxley Clovis at storyconnective.org. Audio production by Jeffrey Gaston and Loxley Clovis. The intro song is Which That Is This by Dr. Turtle, released under the Creative Commons Attribution License. The outro song is by Rebecca Rhapsody. Special thanks to our nonprofit fiscal sponsor, Elsa, at ellsa.org. The purpose of this audio interview is for nonprofit education, news, and commentary. This interview is released under the Attribution Share Alike Creative Commons license. Thank you for listening to the Story Connective.